Welcome to the Wounded Healers podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Janessa. We are two women who were diagnosed with autoimmune diseases in our early 20s. We were lucky enough to find each other and find community and it's something that we want to bring to anyone else who may be in a similar place. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Wounded Healers podcast. We hope you're all feeling okay. Hey Janessa, how are you? Hey Amy, I'm good. I'm actually really excited for today. Um, Not only do I have a new mic, so hopefully this will be better quality, but it's our first guest episode and that's the most exciting part about today. So um, today we have Allie Kaiser on and she is just an amazing individual and I'm going to give her, you know, the mic right now so she can introduce herself a bit because today's topic is mental health and she is our go-to here. So Allie, welcome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I feel so happy to be here and I appreciate you guys having me on as your first guest. My name is Allie Kaiser. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I've been working in the field of mental health for several years now, um, and I've worked with various populations. So I've worked with children. I have worked with um, women, adult women who have very serious eating disorders. And currently I'm working with the um, forensic population as a forensic mental health clinician. So I actually work with clients who are guilty but not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, And I restore them to sanity and um, work with them in the outpatient setting. So, Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. What what an amazing, fulfilling way to spend your time. Thank you. Yes, it definitely is fulfilling and challenging. The perfect mix. That is awesome. We are so excited to have you here today because our last episode... Um, which we are going to be releasing before this is going to be on mindset. And in there, Amy and I briefly touched on the feelings around depression um, and seeking out therapy, but we stopped there because we wanted a professional like you to come on um, because we are not fully qualified to talk about those areas. We can only talk about our experiences with them. We wanted to like open that up to you with some questions that Amy and I have kind of gathered together um we kind of wanted to just ask what made you want to go into this field what made you want to work with people in this way yeah that's a good question so I started off um knowing that I wanted to learn more about psychology like in high school I took a psychology class which was really lucky because a lot of high schools don't offer you know that Um, So I took a psychology class. It was very basic. You know, we didn't really get into the nitty gritties of anything, but immediately it intrigued me. Um, And so I knew that I needed to learn more. Um, So out of high school, I um, went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, so UCSB, um, and I double majored there in psychology and communication. Um, I wasn't sure that I wanted a career in psychology necessarily, at the time. So that's why I also majored in communication. Um, And what I found was both majors were equally as appealing and thrilling to me and just so interesting. Um, And I thought, what is a career that kind of combines the two? And it just kind of naturally amounted to therapy. Um, And 
I've always kind of naturally been the go-to for my friends and the people in my life to kind of come and talk to you about what's going on in their life and be open about their feelings. And so, I don't know, I always kind of think that therapy kind of found me. (laughs) Um, And I think most therapists would probably say that. Like normally therapists, they've gone through something themselves in their lives. Um, They kind of are a little bit more emotional. They're able to communicate and articulate their feelings. And so more than anything, I think that the field found me. (laughs) I think that's, I think a lot of people find that where you just have a real natural affinity for people feeling like you're a safe space. Like, you know, did you, when you were younger, did you just have people like telling you their (laughs) their darkest, (laughs) darkest secrets? Yeah. Yeah. Even today, like before people even know I'm a therapist, they're like getting into the details of their lives. And then I'm like, you know, I'm in the right field. I must be, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I think so. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's always helpful too. I feel like if you have um, someone in this field that you feel comfortable opening up to, that's such a gift because I know that sometimes there's a narrative of, trying really hard to find a therapist that is a good match for you. You know, it is kind of in a strange way, it has some parallels to like the dating field in the sense where you need to find someone you connect well with. But of course, it is not dating. It is a profession and there's definitely appropriateness there. But I'm glad that you are someone who's affable, totally open. Um, Ali is a totally open book. So we're really excited to like have you here. And um, yes, Excited too. Yeah. So we we also kind of wanted to ask um, if you have any experience with chronic or any long term health conditions yourself. Do you have anyone close to you in your life who has any chronic conditions? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and it's it's a loaded one. There's a lot of. I mean, I could write a whole essay on this topic, um, as I'm sure you guys can as well. But um, yeah, I so recently actually. Um, on the topic of autoimmune, in fact, um, probably it was last year, I started to have some just odd symptoms that to me were unexplainable. Um, went to a couple doctors, went to a couple rheumatologists, ended up in the hospital a couple of times. Um, and essentially kind of what I was diagnosed with was unspecified connective tissue disorder. So, um, I didn't quite meet the full criteria for any of the other diagnoses that fall under the category of autoimmune disease. Um, so they put me as unspecified, but it still very much, um, can affect my life. And especially in the time that I was unsure what was going on and what the diagnosis was, and even getting a diagnosis like this is not super helpful, um, because it's unspecified. And so it's a little different and it's not as clear cut. Um, but Yes, that was kind of a turning point um, in my life and really challenging last year. Luckily, um, I have been really solid this year. Um, I haven't really been suffering physically in the same kind of way as I was last year, Um, but my Mm -hmm. lifestyle has changed a lot um, in order to help myself feel good. Um, and I am on medications as well. And that is really helpful too. Um, in terms of mental health, I definitely have struggled with my fair share of depression. And in fact, I'm pretty open about this too. Um, I'm on a low dose of an antidepressant. It works wonders for me. I take it 
all the time. I mean, every day. Um, and I don't anticipate getting off of it because it works so well for me. And I really do believe in the power of medication when it is needed. Um, it can work wonders. So yeah, I mean, that's a little bit about, you know, my personal struggles more recently. Um, and then I do have friends who suffer from autoimmune diseases as well as mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, I think everybody knows somebody, you know, if, if not themselves, everybody knows somebody who has had to go through that, um, in some way or another, or is dealing with it and struggling with it. So I think it's relatable, these topics to everybody. Were you, do you mind me asking, was your diagnosis of depression post your experiences with your connective tissue issue or was that great question no um actually it really wasn't and I think um the treatment that I received for the just kind of low grade depression that I have chronically um really helped to make going through that so much more manageable and doable for me um I go to therapists myself and a lot of therapists see therapists um, and, and the medication, as I mentioned that I'm on, um, really helped going through that. But no, for me, it was just going through the difficult life transitions of, you know, your twenties basically that created the depression and, you know, the milestones, getting a full-time job, just having realizations about life and the world, you know, basically that. Well, was thank you for being it. open about like sharing that Ali like of course I feel like we've touched on the topic of depression just briefly Amy and I but there's something about like what you just said where therapists need therapists and I think that's important to say because I believe that like therapy is for everyone and that someone who's actively working on themselves is really filling up their cup enough to be able to share what their gifts are with other people so I think that's important for people to hear because there's this old stigma of, you mm -hmm. know, if I'm receiving help, I can't help others. And I think that is not a valid stigma at all. So Ali, it'd be really cool for our listeners um, who aren't really familiar with therapy or the concept of therapy, if you could just break down what therapy is, why you might seek out therapy and um, any, any kind of types of therapy that you want to talk about would be cool. Yeah, so I really feel that, you know, no matter who you are, therapy can help you because it looks at how you manage the things that happen in your life um, and where you may be able to improve and then helps you figure out how to make those improvements so that you can have a better quality of life. You can be happier. You can have better relationships. Um, and you can be more aligned in your life with what it is you're wanting and what your personal goals are. So I really feel that it's not a weakness going to therapy. A lot of people think that it is, you know, why is it that I can't deal with my issues myself? What, who am I to think that a stranger is going to be able to help me more than myself? But re realistically, you know, therapy is, it's a strength, you know, it's the ability to say, Hey, I may not be the master at this particular thing in my life and I'm willing and open to learn how to do better or to be better um, or to show up differently um, and in a way that gets my needs met better. Um, so it's pretty, it's a pretty amazing experience. If you've never done therapy, I, I recommend it, especially at some point in your life, you know, it doesn't hurt to try and uh, it could be really life changing and, you know, really help you 
become the best version of yourself. I I really resonate. So I um I started therapy for the first time ever um at the I think it was the beginning of this year, maybe late last year, the beginning of this year. Um and I went with a very specific um goal in mind, but aside from that, I learned so much about myself from the therapist and it um it it was really like I kind of see it as like a key turning moment that unlocked so much power in me just understanding why I my my personal issue is like having confront like I just could not have anything even remotely confrontational (laughs) any any conversation where I had to like confront someone or something just didn't have it in me and um yeah my therapist kind of helped me understand why that was and since then I've just I'm so much more powerful and I can have I can face into these conversations and I can like tell people what I want and need and I mean it's yeah it's incredible so and I'm just like why didn't I why wasn't I there 10 years ago but um yeah yeah that's great to hear it really I mean therapy gives you tools you didn't know existed you know, and it gives you new perspectives that you may not have thought of on your own. And it really can just change your perspective, which then changes the way you feel about whatever the situation may be. Totally. I love that because what you both were describing, the way I was just thinking of it is my past self, when I used to feed into the stigmas around therapy, used to think I'm going because I need to be fixed. And what I'm hearing is, no, I'm not going because I need to be fixed. I'm going because I want to deepen the relationship with myself. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing like doing that with someone who really doesn't have any, like a foot in any of the interests in your personal life other than your own well-being and your mm-hmm. own um, success. So they're not wrapped up in your daily, um, you know, dramas or, you know, your daily storyline in that sense. So I love what I'm hearing because it means that for me, at least, if my mind shifted, I'm sure a lot of other people's will shift with, I'm not here to be fixed. I'm here to get to know myself. I'm here to better myself, like Ali said. I love that. A hundred percent. It's like, if you're not getting therapy in 2022, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really just a way to boost your life and to boost yourself mm-hmm. and I can't say enough good things about it. I mean, obviously I'm biased because I do it for a living, but uh, you know, even if I, even if I didn't do this for a living, I mean, based on what everybody that I know who's done therapy has said, it's just nothing but a value add to your life. So on that, on value adding and thinking of our audience and kind of the things that they might've gone through is there anything kind of specific that you think someone who suffers with chronic illness could get out of seeing a therapist? A hundred percent. I think, I mean, when you're suffering from a chronic illness, one of the big things to have to grapple with is acceptance um, and grief. Grief is a huge one. Grieving the life you once knew, grieving the life you once lived and having to learn to accept how having a chronic illness will change your life um, and will you know, change your relationships. And um, it's definitely something that I would recommend to somebody who is, you know, having a hard time coming to terms with kind of this new reality that they may be experiencing. 
um, you know, as well as the, the side effects, you know, having side effects that are really debilitating um, from a chronic illness can be really, can cause you to feel very hopeless. Um, they, you know, and sad and depressed or anxious um, or fearful even. So there are so many feelings and emotions that one must have to to go through um, when they're suffering from a chronic illness. Um, and there's so many stages to having an illness. I mean, you may be doing really good one day and then the very next day you may really be struggling. Um, so having somebody to talk to that can kind of help you through it, I think is key really to being able to manage it well. Yeah, I can, I completely agree with you. And even more specifically, having someone that you can talk to that is completely judgment free is so, or isn't bringing their own, their own emotions to your story. It's, it can be really hard um, to talk to like your family or your close friends when you're going through something like chronic illness, particularly our parents. Lo love my parents, if you're listening you're amazing but I think it's really difficult for parents to process a child having a chronic illness and they bring a lot of their own kind of yeah feelings and emotions towards the way that they comfort you or the way that they're um having that conversation with you so having someone that has zero personal connection to you who can just be a sounding board is I think really important that's a really good point. Absolutely. Because, you know, you may feel pressure to kind of people please the other person, you know, like, as you were saying, Amy, your, your parents, you know, there's maybe things you don't want to share because you know, will be hard for them to hear. But with a therapist, it kind of takes the pressure off. Um, you can be your genuine self. You don't have to worry about the feelings of the therapist um, or censor yourself in that way. Yeah, I love that. I love that because also it's just so much of the aspect of what I felt when I first was diagnosed was sadly, you know, I, I hate to put this out there, but I really felt like a burden at some times because my natural inclination is to people please. I call myself a recovering people pleaser. But when I was talking to my parents, I always dulled down what I was experiencing because I didn't want them to worry. I didn't want to add on to what they already had going on in their lives. And same here, as Amy said, I love my parents. I'm sure they're going to listen to this. I love you both so much. Yeah, it's just been like, it totally is a journey. And just to grapple with not wanting to put things on other people's plates is a weird feeling too. It's just a whole nother layer to what you're already going through. Ali, I want to ask about the kind of coping mechanisms and behavioral patterns that can commonly occur in people who are going through a really massive and impactful life change. Because we kind of touched on it in my diagnosis story um, in our first episode, but at the time of my diagnosis, I really started kind of acting out in a way. Um, and I was kind of running to potentially kind of damaging um, act, behaviors, activities like drinking a lot and stuff like that. And I think on reflection, I can look back and understand that I was, that was a coping mechanism. So yeah, it'd be really cool for our listeners to kind of hear what you commonly see. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that 
when you say the word coping mechanisms, your initial thought is, oh, coping, like they're doing something good for themselves to be able to manage what they're going through. Um, But coping mechanisms are not always adaptive. So um, kind of to your point, Amy, um, people who are struggling with accepting, you know, a life transition or something new that they must like a chronic illness, something that they know that they're going to be having to deal with for potentially the rest of their lives, often the rest of their lives. Um, it can be really hard to come to terms with that and to be at peace with that. And you kind of go through what's called the stages of grief. Um, and there are different ways that we behave when we're in a different stage of grief. So acceptance is basically like the last phase of the stages. So in between that, you go through despair, you go through bargaining, you go through denial. And as you're going through these various stages, um, you behave differently. And, um, you know, you may go use alcohol, you may go use drugs, you may um, start to isolate. And these are ways of numbing, right? And not feeling the feelings that you're having. Um, So they're maladaptive. Um, they could often make the problem worse, not better, um, but they are helpful enough for the individual um, that they're allowing the person to kind of get through what would otherwise be intolerable. So, um, you know, like drinking is a very common one, um, partying, engaging in problematic behaviors, um, going out and being promiscuous or whatever it may be. Um, these are things that are dangerous, but also um, not helpful in the long term. They may just be a short term fix, um, but not something that is really going to help you come to terms with what you're going through. Yeah, but you know, those are those are the maladaptive coping skills. Yeah. So what you were saying, Ali, about like those different coping mechanisms, I definitely, while I backed off of the drinking and the smoking. Um, once I was diagnosed, I definitely used um, a coping method of trying to distract myself with uh, partners. So I was, I don't even know the verbiage to use here. I was like constantly going on Tinder dates, like constantly distracting myself and almost feeling like if I could, you know, get myself into these scenarios and like get to know other people that I could almost like re-narrate my situation. And that's just like was not the reality. But I definitely fell into that where I also kind of like wrapped it up with my self-worth, which is really not um, a good way to do that. But I definitely was like, I still want to be attractive. I still want to go out. Like, you know, even though I feel very unattractive at this point in my life and very stuck. So I definitely um, used that coping method. So if you're out there and you're using that or have used that, I feel you. And I'm definitely glad that therapy exists because it's allowed me to like grow out of that. Yeah. Um, I also... I also did that. I think it's um I think just to touch on what you briefly said there in terms of being an object of like desire or affection for um a man or a partner um it really when you're questioning your own body and when you're definitely not feeling attractive it, it is like an almost a reassurance type thing um, on the promiscuity front. And I can absolutely say that I um, took part in that. To be honest, I also drank and did drugs. So three for three. 
<laughs> if anyone anyone else out there. <laughs> oh man. I'm sure there are people out there who can definitely relate because it's just it, it just feels like a natural thing when you have this going on in your life to lean into something that allows you to like not be in your reality for a little. And especially because we were in our early twenties, Amy. Like that's the time. I mean, I damn it, I was 21 ready to get messed up and then this messed me up. What the heck? <laughs> there are plenty of people out there who aren't running from um aren't running from their trauma or also indulging in those activities. So and also we're not judging you either. Do you like do you like to be a little miss promiscuous? I back I back you on that till the end. Mm-hmm. No excuses necessary. Yes, you do you. Just be safe. Take yeah. care of your body. Be safe. Yeah. <laughs> so Ali, I know that like when I was using these coping skills that were not really beneficial for me, I was not aware in that moment that I was leaning on these as almost like a a bandage to just temporarily slap on while I was trying to work through all these emotions around having an autoimmune disease. And if I could go back, I wish I had some tools to maybe get more introspective in that moment. Um, And during those times, do you have any tools you can suggest for folks that have just kind of started their journey and maybe don't know um, if those are coping skills that are not beneficial to them? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point. Um, I think one thing that's important to highlight is that a behavior isn't necessarily a bad behavior unless it adversely affects your life in some way, right? So if um, you're noticing that you're starting to have issues in your relationships and you're receiving feedback from people that care about you that, hey, they're noticing some changes that are concerning um, and that don't seem like you, right? Um if you're receiving that feedback from friends, if you're losing friendships, if you are, um, you know, getting into more arguments, if you are, you know, not feeling fulfilled at the end of the day, if you're feeling what's called cognitive dissonance, where um, you're continuing to do something, um, such as like, let's just use the promiscuous example, you continue to put yourself in these promiscuous situations, at the end of the night, you come home and you're feeling like crap about yourself, Um, and what you just did, then that's a sign, right? That you're engaging in a behavior that may actually not be super helpful for you and may actually be harmful. Um, If your health is declining, you know, you're using drugs and, you know, you're not feeling good physically. Um, You're not able to get up in the morning and go to work. Your job is suffering. These are all indications that you may be engaging in behaviors that, while they help you in the moment to cope and to maybe numb your emotions or your feelings or your thoughts, um, they're causing more harm than good, right? Um, So those are kind of some indications that can help you recognize, hey, maybe the way that I'm choosing to cope is actually not within my best interest. Maybe I need to figure out something else that works better. Um, And So, you know, other coping skills that I think would be more adaptive would be, you know, being introspective, um, perhaps journaling, um, perhaps turning to mindfulness, um, engaging in behaviors that create this sense of flow where you kind of lose Mm -hmm. yourself in the activity um, and you spend all of your 
energy, your concentration, your entire mindset on what you're engaging in in the moment. Um, For me, that's bar. Bar is like an exercise that is totally a mindful activity for me. Um, But for different people, it's different things. It could be running. It could be painting. um, It could be journaling. It could be playing an instrument. Um, These are all really amazing things that you can do to kind of turn your focus away from all the noise in your head and, you know, really kind of fixate on just the activity that you're working on in that moment. It could be seeing a therapist, as we discussed before. It could be talking to a trusted friend or a family member. Um, You know, it could be crying. Sometimes crying is really cathartic, you know, and allowing yourself to feel the feelings and to not be judgmental of the way that you're feeling, to just kind of accept that you're going through something hard and to honor that and acknowledge that and allow yourself to feel it. Even that can be so healing. So there are so many ways to really... um, cope with issues that you're you may be having in your life um and it may take a little bit of time to figure out what it is that works best for you yeah that's so beautiful I wish I had had that insight back when I was first diagnosed just the simple act of finding something that puts you into flow and do that more um because it's something that will be accessible to everyone and yeah that's a really wonderful piece of advice so thank you for that what puts you in flow Janessa you know what it's something that wasn't as present in my life when I first was diagnosed but I started rock climbing and I know we'll get into that in another episode but um I have to that leads me into something I want to mention with rock climbing I don't climb with all my limbs necessarily because I do have my right arm that has um it does not have full full mobility anymore. So I have to actually completely adapt um, the style in which I climb and the way in which I climb. Um, And I have to let my climbing partners know that because I don't move the way other climbers move and I need to go really slow sometimes. I need breaks. So something I was going to mention is the flow state stuff. When I was at my darkest time, when I was very severely depressed my first year of my diagnosis, I actually like gave away things that put me into a flow state. Like I gave away my ukulele. I gave away all these things because the diagnoses that, and the stories I read online were like, I can't use my hands well, and I can't do this. And so I thought, oh gosh, I'll never be able to do these things I love. And I gave away these things I love. And that's a deep regret of mine because you can find a way. And the part that's hard to see is that you can find that flow state by just adapting. Like, yes, you will need to do it a little differently, but you're still going to be able to do it. You're still going to find a way to make it work. So, you know, if you're listening to this and saying like, yeah, but like, I I can't do, you know, I love soccer and my knees are really hurting right now. There's still a way, there's still totally a way. And um, it just takes some kind of creativity sometimes and just listening to things like this to find what that vantage point is for you. And on that too, Jenna, that's such a good point. Really, really good point. The things that maybe brought you joy before that you would normally turn to to cope, you might not be able to do, you know, given the limitations that you now have to adapt to. And that can also be really devastating and can cause depression, can cause grief, sadness, um, you know, all of the things really. So, I mean, I mean, that's just one small piece of the puzzle that you may have to grapple with um, or figure out how to do it differently. And um, 
so yeah, I, I really appreciate that point that you just made because even even that may have to be an adjustment that takes some getting used to and acceptance in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Thank you. Um, well, I wanted to ask you, Ali, um, since I just brought up depression, I was hoping that you'd be able to like define depression for us. And um, after you define depression, I really wanted to kind of know the difference between someone feeling in a state of depression like if you know like sometimes it's casually said like oh I feel so depressed right now like as an expression but not actually as a diagnosis uh so I was wondering kind of like what the differences are there between feeling really down and actually dealing with depression yeah no absolutely I think um you know it's really really normal to feel down sometimes um even if there's not a particular reason or something that you can pinpoint as to what caused you to feel that way. Um, Sometimes we just have down days and it may not be explainable, right? Um, And that's okay. That's normal. And sometimes we just need to kind of meet ourselves where we're at and honor where we're at without an understanding as to why that may be. Um, Where it kind of turns into more of a depression or a depressive state is when it persists. Um, And I think the timeline is two weeks. Um, Generally, if you are feeling more sad and depressed than not, um, more days than not, um, and it's affecting your life in some way, and you're noticing these changes, and, you know, it's starting to be debilitating, then you may know that you are going through something a little bit deeper than just average sadness. Um, It could look different for different people, um, but some of the things that you may notice from one person to the next are um, increased sleep. So, you know, sleeping way later, sleeping throughout the day, feeling unmotivated, not wanting to get up out of bed or really do anything. Um, not getting the same amount of gratification out of the things that would normally bring you joy. Um, so if you love getting up and, you know, going on your morning walk and suddenly you're doing the walk and you're getting nothing out of it and it just feels empty to you, that would be a sign. Um, sometimes overeating could be something that people go through or under eating, you know, either a major appetite or no appetite at all. So you may see fluctuations in your weight um, that could occur. Let's see, tearfulness is a big one. Um, Suddenly you just can't stop crying. You find yourself crying all the time. Other times you may feel really irritable. I know when I get depressed, irritability is kind of the big issue that I have to deal with. Um, Isolation is another thing you may notice as well. Let's see, just feeling a sense of despair and hopelessness is another thing you may notice. Um, And even suicidality, you know, you may start to recognize that you're having these thoughts that scare you, Um, you know, thoughts about wanting to harm yourself, thoughts about not wanting to be here anymore. Um, They could be passive thoughts, you know, such as, "Ugh, I just wish that I didn't have to wake up tomorrow. Or they could be active thoughts, you know, with a plan. You haven't you have a thought about driving your car off a cliff, you know. These can all be big indications that you are suffering from a depressive episode and that you may need help. Thank you for sharing that. I think that I didn't realize how deep in a hole of 
depression I was like until I started actually finding myself thinking like I don't want to exist in this body anymore and um I actually might cry this episode (laughs) so it's like really hard for me to talk about this but my first year of diagnosis was so hard that I just felt like it's never going to be better it's always going to be this way it's just going to get worse and I just kept thinking like how how will I show up as a mom someday? How will I show up as a friend to my friends? How am I going to show up as a sister to my siblings? And at some point, it felt so overwhelming for me that I worked myself into this very depressive state where I convinced myself it would just be better if I was not existing. And when I finally just felt that deep weight, um, it was such a strange feeling. It was like, a weight on my shoulders, but at the same time, my insides, like my inner body felt vacant. I felt like my spirit, my liveliness, my charisma was gone. Like she was just not in this physical body anymore. And um, I was just there kind of trudging through. And so finally, when I opened up to my boyfriend at the time, Zach, now my husband of really how bad it was getting and really because he he really took time to sit down and say, hey, I I feel like you're really struggling and I know you're going through something really hard, but like you're not talking to me, you're not opening up to me and I really need to know where you're at. And I just, I couldn't keep it in. I just broke down and I was like, I don't think I want to be here anymore. And he was like, in this relationship? I was like, no, I want this relationship, but I like don't want this body anymore. And um, that was when, I realized when I said that to him and I saw the way that impacted him and he became emotional that I realized like, wow, this is actually really serious. And like, I really do need help because I love the person in front of me and I know deep down I love myself. So I need to, I need someone to throw me a rope down in this dark hole so I can try and climb out with their support. So yeah, that was really tough. Janessa, thanks for sharing that. How can I ask, how did you pull yourself out of that that mindset? How did you turn it around for yourself? What'd you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to say it's still it's still a process. Like I struggle with chronic depression. So I do have that diagnosis. And um at first what it was was going on Lexapro, and that is an antidepressant. And I was on that for about a year. And that helped me out quite a bit. I will say, unfortunately for me, it wasn't the correct fit at the time because it did kind of, um, it made me feel pretty anxious Mm -hmm. at times. But for the most part, it really helped me to kind of kickstart my way out of that mindset. And then I went to therapy. Like I just started seeing a therapist and how I saw my therapist was I reached out to uh, my family. I reached out to my mom and, uh, I reached out to, uh, I think my grandma as well, and just said like, hey, I didn't fully tell them what I was going through. I really didn't want to scare them. But I said, you know, I really need your help right now. Like, I really need to talk to someone. And I feel like I don't have the bandwidth to get it together. Like, I'm barely hanging on. So if someone can come in and just like, help me look online for who takes my insurance, like, please. And surprisingly, and not surprisingly, actually, they came and helped out. So I found an amazing therapist and we started working on mindfulness and we really, I don't know the name of the method that we did, but it was a lot of sitting in her office and 
speaking to myself. So there was like a chair in front of me and she asked me to express my inner dialogue to that chair as if she wasn't in the room. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard because it was so vulnerable and intimate for me because I couldn't get out of my head that she was in the room. But when I started to just let things naturally flow out and say how I was feeling at that time, it really let her see kind of where I was at and allowed her to prescribe um, different modalities of healing for me. So I went into meditation, um, journaling. It was a lot of different key components, but the thing that really helped me was a consistency. And I'm not a very consistent person by nature. So that therapist helped me so much by making sure I was accountable, that I was showing up for myself. Um, so that was the beginning. But like I said, I, I still struggle with this. And like, some days I'm doing great. And some days I really need, I need an extra help. And that's when I text my therapist, I use an app and I'm like, Hey, I'm struggling. That's awesome. I mean, wow. I just want to add like to what you shared Janessa just now that therapy really is dependent upon the client. So like what you put in is what you get out. Um, you can't just go to therapy sit there for 40 minutes, 40, 50 minutes, walk out and not think about anything you just discussed for the la- for the next week or two, right? And it sounds like you really put in the work, you know, you allowed yourself to be vulnerable in the office with the therapist when you guys did what's called the empty chair technique, actually, um, which is a very, that's a very um, unique type of therapy. It's actually called gestalt therapy. Um, and it's one modality, it's one intervention that just all therapists use. Um, but that sounds cool that it worked for you. Um, and then too, the journaling that you did on your own time, the meditating you did on your own time, like those are all you putting in the work outside of the therapy session, because you spend way more of your life outside of your therapist's office than inside of your therapist's office. So you really got to, you know, do your homework you know, have that consistency, as you mentioned, um, or you really won't get anything out of it. I mean, the way that I liken it to is if you go to the gym five days a week, but when you go to the gym, all you do is watch the TVs in there. Well, you can't just, Mm. you're not getting anything out of it just because you go to the gym. You know, you actually have to put in the work. (laughs) So it's the same with therapy. Mm. You can't just say you go to therapy. You have to actually do the therapy. So I appreciated you saying that. Yeah, Janessa, as you um, touched on suicide there, and I think a lot of people listening to this will share in your feelings of, I don't want to experience this life anymore. I can say I absolutely had those feelings when I was first being diagnosed and had thoughts that I do not have anymore, but absolutely thoughts that scared me, as you said earlier, Ali. What if someone at home is listening? I want to say that you're not alone if you also feel that way. And if you don't have someone close that you can confide these thoughts to, Ali, is there somewhere that they can reach out? What do you recommend that they do? Okay, so yes, there are different crisis lines that you could call depending on where you live. 
Um, Amy, I know you are in England, so I wouldn't know the crisis numbers for over there. Um, it's a simple Google search if, um, if you're interested in figuring that out. But in the United States, the suicide and crisis line is 988. So you literally just dial 988 and it's toll free. So it's free to call the number. Um, it's a 24 hour hotline. So no matter what time of day it is, you can call. Um, and they have just people on the phone that can kind of help you through whatever it is you are going through in the moment, um, whether it's a crisis or whether it's just you needing to talk to somebody, anybody to get something off your chest. They're there. I know that they offer services in both English and Spanish. I don't know if they offer services in any other languages. They may be able to, but I think for sure English and Spanish. Um, but yes, definitely you can utilize a, a, one of the crisis hotlines and you know whatever you share is confidential. Um, it's a safe space, so highly recommend. Thank you for that. Yeah. And if you're in the UK, you can contact Samaritans on um, 116123. That's also free from any phone. Um, and you can talk to them about anything that's upsetting you. You don't necessarily have to be suicidal. The other thing that you can do too, if if you know that you are potentially a danger to yourself and you don't want to be, you could go to a local hospital. Just go to the hospital and say, hey, I feel like hurting myself. I feel like I need help. Um, you know, can I be admitted here? Can I receive the help? And they will always, you know, accept you or they will send you to, um, you know, the special wing of their hospital that is kind of mental health based. Um, you'll talk to providers. You'll probably see a psychiatrist. Um, that's always, always an option is to just go to your local hospital and seek help there. And the amazing thing about that is like, I briefly worked um, at a clinic in the psych department and there's so many therapists and social workers and people in those departments who love what they do and want to help you. So again, on the topic previously of like feeling like a burden, you're not. And there's people who their gift in this lifetime and just in general is to help people who are in a dark place. And so if you are able to seek out that help, just know someone has a, a natural gift and they want to help you. So you are not a burden to them. So Ali, to kind of move along with more of our questions here, I wanted to ask you, how can family and friends support someone who's going through a really like difficult time? And it doesn't have to be necessarily around the topic of suicide that we just mentioned, but let's say someone was just diagnosed and they're just having a really hard time adapting to life with medication and going back into the life that they once lived um, before their diagnosis. Are there ways family members might be able to approach them and offer support? Absolutely. I think, um, well, if, before I answer that question, I, I just want to say that the family members and the loved ones of the person who is suffering may also need mm -hmm. to actually find support as well, because it's, um, 
kind of a, it can be kind of a family illness, honestly. You know, a lot of people can be affected by one person suffering or struggling. So I just want to say that if you are a loved one or somebody who lives with somebody who is experiencing um, a new chronic illness diagnosis, um, you too may need some help and support and some care. Um, and that's okay too. It's okay to need that. And I just wanted to um, normalize that because it's hard um, to love and to care for somebody who's going through something so challenging. So that's the first thing I would say is to, you know, put your, secure your own mask before you go and look to secure the mask of others. Um, so that's the first thing. But I think a good way to offer support to somebody is to ask them what they're needing. Um, to say, hey, I am imagining that what you're going through must be really challenging and really difficult. And I want to support you in the best way I know how. What can I do to help you through this right now? You know, whether it's just a listening ear or whether it's somebody to, you know, um, hold you accountable um, and make sure that you're doing the things you need to do to boost your own mental health. Um, it could look different for different people. You know, some people may just need some time, some space and just understanding. So you don't want to make assumptions as to what it is a person is needing at any given point. The best thing you can do is ask the question and clarify for your own understanding. So I would say um, just letting the person know that you're there and available to help in whatever way it is that they need. Nice. And I just want to also add to that to encourage the person who is chronically ill or dealing dealing with anything if someone asks you what you need be brave enough to tell them like you it, everything is so much better if you communicate your needs and don't be afraid I think I said this before but you'll be amazed at how many people want to help you and are able to help you so yeah don't you do not have to say I'm fine you, if you're not fine you don't let's just destroy the sentence I'm fine <laughs> and I am fine can also look like maybe I don't know what I need right now yeah and that is also valid you can let that person know like thank you so much for asking me this and can I get back to you in a day like I, I actually don't really know what I need right now and maybe that's time for self-reflection but I love that instead of reverting to I'm fine like Amy said it can be uh, thank you, but I just need a little bit more time to figure out kind of what I need. I was going to add that that is actually refreshing, um, Ali, that you said, you know, ask people what they need because a lot of times I think of social media and like in passing, um, I see a lot in the chronic illness world of people being like, oh, just try this just do this, you know, just do that. Just try yoga. We see a lot of jokes about that online or, you know, just have, take some turmeric. And um, while sometimes the intention behind that is genuine and honest, um, it it misses the mark. It, it doesn't um, feel like that's what I need. <laughs> so I like that approach of asking what they need instead of just uh, pressing upon them what you think they need. Right. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Um, I'm glad that you brought that up. There's a lot of people that think they know what you need. Um, and really nobody knows what you need except for you. And like you said, Janessa, sometimes you don't even know what you need. 
in the moment. And that's okay too. You don't always have to have the answers. So if people have listened to this podcast today and they've been inspired to kind of explore a little bit more about this, but they don't necessarily have a therapist or therapy accessible to them right now, Ali, what can they do to kind of explore some of these principles on their own in their own life? I think um, if you don't have access to a therapist or access to therapy, um, there are a lot of resources that you can turn to probably in your area. Um, Obviously, the internet is a very powerful tool and, you know, you can Google or look up some of the things that we've hit on um, if you're interested to kind of learn more. There's so many resources online. There's Zoom meetings. Um, For instance, as we were talking about earlier, if you're struggling with kind of problematic behaviors, if you're drinking, if you're, you know, more promiscuous, whatever it may be, there are so many different kinds of group meetings that you can meet at. So AA meetings, NA meetings, um, you can do it virtually, you can go in person. Um, Those are all great. A lot of therapists who offer group therapy for a very cheap amount of money, you can pop into a group therapy session for 10 bucks sometimes or even free. Um, And they're out there in your area. So you just have to look into it. So um, there are various apps you can download on your phone that can help you kind of practice new behaviors that will be helpful for you, such as the app Headspace. There's an app Calm as well. There's so many different apps that you can look up, but um, they take you through different guided meditations. Um, They can take you through guided visualizations. There are so many different um, variations of meditative tools that you can use and from an app or even just YouTube. If you use YouTube, you can YouTube different meditations. There's tons of things out there. Um, Another thing that you can simply do is just implement some exercise in your life. So that can be simple. If you don't have a gym or a gym membership, you can just take a walk around your neighborhood. Um, You know, exercise is scientifically proven to really help and assist with mental health. So that's a simple thing you can do. Just 20, 30 minutes of movement in your day can make such a big difference. Getting good sleep, um, having a consistent sleep schedule, practicing good sleep hygiene. Those are all really important things that you can do for yourself. Um, You know, being thoughtful about getting your nutrition in is another really important thing that you can do journaling is really wonderful and just you know leaning on your support system whoever that may be um, it's really important to be able to do that there's nothing like having somebody to talk to Um, it can be so validating and so helpful in so many ways so there's so many things that people can do um, even if they don't have a therapist or if they don't want to take medication Um, you know, these are all things that are widely accessible to me. So Ali, I love that all those things you've mentioned that are, you know, much more accessible to a wide variety of people that may be listening. So I really appreciate your expertise in that and your care. And just, I really appreciate that you are put here and you're doing what you're meant to do in this lifetime. You're helping other people out. You're one of the most helpful, kind compassionate people I know so I'm so glad you're in this field and um, I also just want to make sure that anyone who's listening today who felt very called to Ali and 
very much in alignment with what Ali has provided with us today, that they're able to follow you and kind of see what you have to provide for them. So do you have an Instagram they can follow or a website? Yes. So I really appreciate, first of all, you guys having me on here as your first guest. I am so thrilled and buzzing to be here, as Amy would say. (laughs) Um, So really, really happy to be here. And thank you so much. And it was great having this conversation with you guys. So um, but as far as following me, so I do have like a therapy Instagram that you can follow if you're interested. Unfortunately, I haven't really been keeping it up to date, but that is about to change because I'm actually starting my own private practice, um, which I've really not shared with anybody. So this oh, is like heard it here my, <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first. Um, <laughs> I am starting that in the new year. Amazing. <clears throat> That's so exciting for you. And I just want to say, what a first guest. I couldn't have dreamed of a better first guest for our podcast. You've been amazing today. Thank you for sharing such valuable insight. I'm really happy to be here and thank you so much. We are going to be posting podcasts every two weeks. So we look forward to having you here in two weeks. Until then, remember to let the light in. Bye. Bye.